0: We're going to spend some time now studying the Bible together. We do this every week. So if you're new, this is just a regular rhythm of what we're about. This is our foundation. We go to the scriptures as our authority. We open the scriptures every week because we believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. So we're a community of learners. We, we come before the word and we want to learn from God and we want to receive from Jesus. And so we say all the time, we welcome you, whether you're committed to Jesus already, you have Firm, confident convictions about the scriptures, or you're just curious. um, If you're just wanting to know more about who Jesus is, this is the way you can find out: is by looking in the scriptures. We've been doing a topical series. Uh, We do this often in January. We'll do sanctity of human life, the abortion issue, and we'll talk about race relations because of the calendar based on Martin Luther King Jr. Day and want to honor him, but also just think about how the church can be part of that solution of unity versus division in our culture. So that's where we are this week. And then next week, we'll kick back into what our regular rhythm is, is what we call expositional. Sometimes it's called expository preaching, which is where we just crack open a book of the Bible and just march through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So we'll go back to that and finish 1 Corinthians. Next week, as Lucas joked, uh, it's gonna start off with a bang, talking about gender issues in chapter 11. So that'll be fun. Um, but we've, we've, already, we've already been exposed to a lot of controversial things in First Corinthians anyway, so it's nothing especially new there. So today, we're calling it ethnic unity. Ethnic unity, we're going to be in Ephesians. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Ephesians. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some black Bibles under the chair. You can keep that if you don't have one at home. Ephesians chapter 2, this is one of the short letters in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. We're going to be focusing in on verses 11 through 22. We're calling it ethnic unity. And so before we crack open what the Bible says about ethnic unity found in Jesus, it's good to define uh, what um, division is and what disunity is. And so just kind of a couple of scattershot ideas about division in our culture. Um, Number one, as we observe Martin Luther King Jr. Day tomorrow, it's good to remember that our country has a history of division particularly racial and ethnic division. We just have to acknowledge that. We believe the way forward is in Christ, is by trusting in Jesus. We're not articulating for a particular uh, political solution today. We're articulating for a solution that the church can own by being brothers and sisters in Christ. So we think that's the essential answer. Doesn't mean politics is, a, is you know, wrong. Christians should also think and pray and be involved in, in politics strategically. But what the church is about is not politics. We're about the gospel Of Jesus Christ. So that'll be the primary focus of the text today is how we can be one, how we can be brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, But it's also helpful to recognize man, our history, our country has a history of of division. Um, January 1956, some uh, unknown white supremacist threw a bomb at Martin Luther King Jr.'s house. And this was when he was relatively unknown. This was when he was just a pastor in Montgomery, Alabama. And just a month before, we had seen Rosa Parks refuse to give up her seat to a white man, because the law in Alabama was that black people had to give up their seats for white people on buses, which today we're like, that's just ridiculous. But it was such a big deal that, that someone was willing to throw a bomb at his house. Fortunately, his, his baby and his wife were okay that were there. It was just a kind of a bomb that blew up on their porch. Um, but still, it's just a just a picture to recognize we've, we've come from some serious, serious division in our country. Um, and I believe some of those things still linger in different ways. Now, we just want to acknowledge um, we're divided about opinions about division. That was a very difficult thing to say. We're divided about what we think about division, Right? Some people think, oh, there's no division, everything's cool. Other people think, oh, there's incredible division. It's huge, right? So I just wanna acknowledge there's always gonna be some division because of human sin and human sin's gonna work its way into any government system, any society. So it's it's just gonna be there until Jesus comes back, right? But we are to work towards unity. We're commanded as believers in Christ to practice harmony and unity and oneness. So we are to work against it, even as we acknowledge it's always going to be there and acknowledge we're divided on like how bad it is, right? Everybody has different opinions about those things and that's okay. Again, we're not saying that to be a part of this church, you have to have a certain sociological perspective or political perspective to belong here. No, you need to say, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. That, that's what makes us belong to one another. And then we can debate the other issues. Uh, it's also helpful to know that in the modern world, there there's been research that's been done. A lot of people would argue, a lot of researchers argue, that America is actually more divided politically and religiously and culturally than other cultures in the world. Um, Pew research studies that have been done, and a lot of these researchers think, well, it's because in America we're not just divided over. Politics, but we're also divided over religion. We're also divided over morality connected to religion. We're also divided over race, given some of our cultural background. So America is like kind of catching it from different directions. Another thing, and then I promise we'll move on to the text. One more thing to note um, social media is powered financially by division. Like we've got artificial intelligence trying to create division, right? It tries to pull you towards things that are more divisive and more intense to get more clicks and to get more attention. And so it's just really important that we know that many of us are involved with robots (laughs) that are driving division. Like that's actually how it works. That's how social media makes its money is by driving division. Um, And that is a problem in our society. I've said this many times. As Christians, we should either get off of it or have a really strong plan for not being captured by it. So you either engage in it in a very careful way, right? Or you don't engage. Those are really the two options for Christians, but you can't just mindlessly engage because social media drives division. All right, we're gonna look at our text here in Ephesians 2. What's the answer to division? Well, it's unity in Christ. And so we're going to see the solution for ethnic unity here in this chapter. I've got to put on my glasses. I was like, what happened to the text? It got so much smaller. Okay, here we go. Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, let me pause for just a minute. That Greek word is is ethnos. So that's where we get ethnicity, ethnic, tribe, people group, right? That's what the word Gentile means. in Christ Jesus, by his blood, by what he's working out in our lives. And that pulls us together and, and we are becoming this building, not just the building here that we meet in his church, but all Christians from all time are making this new building where, where people will see the spirit of God, where people will, will meet with God himself. That's what a temple is. So there's a new unity that God is building through all the tongues and tribes of the world. Many of us represented here today a new unity in Christ. I'm gonna pray that God's spirit would meet with us now, that God's spirit would come here and help us to hear the word, um, help us to set aside distractions and and pay attention to what God would have for us. So let me pray. God, we pray that your spirit would be with us. We ask by your grace and and for your glory that you would change our hearts, that you would make us receptive to who you are. God, we all have different preferences. We all have different hobby horses. We all have uh, different things that we want to focus on, but, but we pray that this time would be one where, where we focus more on you than anything else. So meet with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've got the, the recipe, if you will, for ethic, ethnic unity. As I said, we all might disagree on the degree to which people are divided but we can agree that people are divided, right? There are different reasons that people are divided. Um, and so it's important to recognize that we can all be one in Christ. Also, as we talk about the meaning of the terms, right? Ethne means tribe, nation. Uh, I'm just gonna be speaking to that broadly. So so we can divide along racial uh, lines in our country. That's a normal thing that human beings do. But it's also important as we talk moving forward to recognize that kind of the modern theories about race are based on Darwinian pseudoscience that we would absolutely reject, right? Kind of racial things that are like, well, this color of skin is better than that color of skin. There was a lot of just disgusting Darwinistic pseudoscience. The Nazis jumped on board with a lot of that. A lot of people in our country jumped on board with that. So we throw that out the window, right? So when we're talking about race, you just have to be careful because a lot of people think, oh, do you buy into all the crazy stuff that's been said about race the last 200 years? No, no, we do not, okay? But we do wanna recognize that, yeah, people often divide along skin color. Sometimes people divide along language. Sometimes people divide up based on what they do for a living, where they live, neighborhood, right? There's all kinds of different ways that people divide. And when the Bible talks about tribes and nations and ethne, the Bible is, is saying all of these different ways apply. So there's a lot of different reasons that we can divide into little clumps and groups and say, well, I'm just gonna hang out with people that vote this way, or I'm just gonna hang out with people that have this color skin, or I'm just gonna hang out with people that speak the way that I speak, right? We, we can divide for different reasons, but all of those different reasons can be described as ethne or tribe. Those are all different ethnicities. It's not just a, a genetic thing, Right? Another sidebar that I have to address is the Jews were both an ethnicity in the racial sense and the genetic and the biological sense as far as like intermarrying and reproducing children, but they were also an ethnicity in the religious sense. God was always opening the door for people of different races or different genetic backgrounds to come in to the people of God by converting and saying, I worship the one true God, Yahweh, Right? Now, we would say there is a difference between Old Testament and New Testament. There were more hoops to jump through in the Old Testament, right? (laughs) Like, we have to acknowledge that. They had to conform more religiously and culturally to enter into that tribe. But it was always a multi-ethnic tribe, right? Um, It was always people coming from different backgrounds in. And so what, what we can do is we can often misread the Old Testament and think of it as being racist where it's not at all, right? When it says don't intermarry with these people, what it's saying is don't marry these people that sacrifice their children to the devil. That's what it's saying. <laughs> it's not saying don't marry people of a certain skin color. And so that's another kind of confusion that we've had many times as we read the Old Testament. It, it's talking about religious commitment to Yahweh, to the God of the Old Testament. That, that's what actually forms the tribe. Okay, so that's background. Here's the outline for where we're going today. Uh, Three simple steps. Uh, Number one, ethnic unity fails in the flesh. The flesh will not accomplish ethnic unity. Ethnic unity fails in the flesh. All of our fleshly efforts. It fails when we try to form unity around what we look like, who we are, our politics, our strategies, that fails. Secondly, in this outline, we'll see that ethnic unity succeeds by the cross. Where this unity never was accomplished before, it can now be accomplished. It succeeds through the cross, the work of Jesus, his death, burial, resurrection. And then finally, this is really important. Ethnic unity is growing now. It's growing now. In my own history with dealing with this issue, often over the last 10, 15 years, I've read more history. I've realized people that looked like me or people that believed this Bible like me or people that grew up in the zip code I grew up did terrible things. And I've gotten angry about it. And I think sometimes over the years, that anger has come out in my preaching. And I just want to acknowledge, I'm not angry at you. I'm angry at sin, right? So it's really helpful to recognize, man, God, God is doing good things. He is creating one new humanity in the church. And I thank you for loving Jesus and loving other people because this is what he's doing. He's growing it now through God's people. Um, One of the books that I've read that's helped me to grow in my understanding of history and what that's looked like in the South and in America is a book called Let Justice Roll Down. You might not agree with everything he says, but this is a pastor named John Perkins that loves Jesus and loves the Bible and lived through some of the terrors of the 50s and 60s in the South. He fled from it to get away from it, and then guess what happened? He met Jesus and he thought, I need to go back to my people in the South and help them to know Jesus as well. And so he entered back into the difficulty in the South, in Mississippi. Great history book, again, with generally biblical assumptions here. That's a great book if you're just trying to kind of learn, learn history from a firsthand account, understand kind of where, where we've been in America in the last couple generations. All right, so first point, ethnic unity fails in the flesh. Ethnic unity fails in the flesh. We'll see this in verses 11 through 12. Verses 11 through 12 um, pick up on this theme that's a biblical theme. Some trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the Lord, our God, right? There's this flesh versus spirit division throughout Bible. It's a big meta theme of the scriptures. It's going to happen again and again, come up again and again. John chapter three talks about it, where Jesus is debating with Nicodemus, the teachers of the Jews, and he says, you must be born again. Your birth in the flesh as a Jew is not enough. It's not enough, Nicodemus. You have to be born again by the Spirit. Paul's going to pick up the same concept here in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, ethnos, tribes, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at, times, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So in order to understand the good news, it's it's good to start with the bad news. We're all outside of God's family because of our own personal sin. Being born in the flesh, we all turn from God. We all do our own thing. None of us have obeyed God perfectly. None of us have loved other people the way that we should. We're all aliens, strangers, outsiders, We're all on the outside of the party, wishing that we could be in the party with God. And the Bible actually says we chose to do that. We purposefully turned from God. Like the older brother in Luke chapter 15, there's this party where the father is rejoicing that one son has repented. The older brother's like, how dare you? How dare you have this party? And he refuses to go in. We've all made that choice. We've all refused to participate in God's party. We've all alienated ourselves. And Paul's saying, yeah, you, you Ephesians, you were Gentiles. You were outside of the tribe of God's blessing. But he does this kind of funny thing throughout Ephesians, throughout the whole New Testament, where he says both insiders, religiously and outsiders, were actually, spiritually speaking, outsiders. The good religious Jews were also outsiders because of their sin. And the bad non-religious, Greeks and Romans and Scythians and you know all these different tribes, they were also outsiders. And he starts to mix up terms in a very interesting way here to say, you know what, no matter what your flesh background is, no matter what uh, family you grew up in, if you grew up in a really good church family, there's great blessings to that. Paul talks about, man, growing up, hearing God's word is good, but it's still not enough to save you. Only a personal relationship of, of trust in Jesus can save you. And so we have to make sure we, we distinguish that. Yeah, do I, do I want my kids to come to church? And do I want you to be religious? And do I want you to read your Bible? Yeah, yeah, those are all great things. Paul affirms that in Romans. But all have fallen short of the glory of God, both religious and non-religious. Every tribe, whether you were born into a religious tribe or you were born outside the religious tribe. So he's talking to the Ephesians here. He's saying, you Gentiles, we're outside But let's look at the language here. He says, Gentiles, ethnos in Greek, in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So here he's distinguishing the two main groups of insider and outsider. And this is a little embarrassing. We got to talk about circumcision here, okay? So um, (laughs) circumcision, just simply stated, was a physical mark on the male reproductive organ to say, you're a part of what God's doing in the world. Started with Abraham. And so this was a way of really reemphasizing this distinction, this big metatheme of scripture, that being born in the flesh is not enough. You need God to purify you. And so God said, I know I'm going to mark the reproductive organ to make sure that my people always remember this, that we need to be purified. Just normal reproduction is not enough. We need God to invade our life and, and clean things up. And so they would make this mark where they would just surgically remove excess flesh from the male body part, okay? Again, sorry, it's gross, but that's just, that's just how God decided to roll, okay? But here's the thing. So that can be talked, in, talked about in general terms on circumcision. You haven't had that mark. And circumcision, you've had that mark, right? But what's really interesting here in the Greek text is our translators have cleaned it up a little bit because what it actually says in the Greek is you... Ethnos, Gentiles, in the flesh, called the foreskins by what is called the circumcision. Again, more gross stuff, but that's the flesh part that was cut away, right? So you Gentiles, by, by the Jews, the circumcision party, you were called the scumbags. This was an ethnic slur. This was a racial slur. The Jews were insulting them, calling them this like disgusting cutaway body part, scrap flat, right? Like they were calling them something disgusting here. And so again, I'm, I'm sorry to bring up the disgusting thing, but there, there are cuss words in the Bible. Surprise, here's some of them here. And it's often in this context that Paul uses this rough language to show the distinction between, frankly, the, the kind of racism that sometimes the people of God would practice. They weren't supposed to, Right? God was always telling the nations to come and worship him. And the people of God were always to be welcoming in all the tongues and tribes to Yahweh. But they often mixed that up and they said, hey, we're better than the other people because we're born into this tribe. And we're gonna call them these nasty names. So Paul is undercutting that whole system by which the Jews thought they were better than the non-Jews just for being Jews. He's undercutting that. Number one, by pointing out the nasty names that the Gentiles were called, but then look at the rest of this verse. He says, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. This is like a hyperlink, right? And you go on a webpage, you click on the, you know, the text, it, boom, it takes you to these other texts. Done by hands is this symbolic phrase for being born of the flesh. You can't be saved by what you've done by your own hands. I'll give you just one cross-reference that'll help you to see it. Paul says this kind of stuff multiple other places in the New Testament, but back in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter two, verse eight, their land is filled with idols. This is a condemnation of the Jewish people. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. Paul is saying the Jews were priding themselves in their circumcision. And then he's like, but that's like a mark done by hands. It's never enough to be marked on the outside. It's never enough to have a membership in a church or to have a a marking on your flesh or to be born into this tribe. That's never enough. You have to have a heart that's yielded to God. So this phrase in the Old Testament becomes circumcision of the heart. It's repeated in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's like, that's great if you have this external mark of being a part of the right tribe. That's great. Do the symbols, right? We wanna practice symbols. We wanna externalize our faith, but you gotta have faith. You have to have a heart that's been circumcised. You have to have a heart that's been purified. You have to have a heart that is in submission to God, that is trusting him. And so this is a consistent message through the Old and the New Testament. It's never enough to just externally conform and be a part of the right religious group. You actually have to trust Jesus. That's, that's the issue here. And so there's unity in that trusting of God. Now, I would argue that it is simpler, bigger, uh, more c- uh, comprehensive now in the New Testament, but that theology was always there. It was there in the Old Testament as well. It's not enough to just be a part of the right tribe. You gotta trust God. And so Paul's picking this up. Here's some New Testament cross-references as well. I said he, he does this in a lot of different places. Philippians 3.3, 3, he repeats the same concepts. Galatians 5.6, he repeats the same con- uh, concepts. And Romans two. 29, I'll read uh, Romans two twenty-nine. A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Previous verse, he just said, being a true Jew is not outward marks. It's not outward circumcision, verse 29, but it's inward, it's the heart, right? So Paul repeats this throughout the New Testament as he is exegeting, if you will, as he is interpreting the Old Testament. He's saying, oh, this new thing in Jesus, it's new, it's bigger, it's better, but it's completely consistent with what God was already doing in the Old Testament. That's really important for us to understand. The Old Testament is easier for us to misunderstand than the new because we're more culturally removed from it. We have more in common with first century Greek and Roman culture than we do with ancient Hebrew culture, right? they are just less steps removed there. And so it's a lot easier for us to read our Old Testament and be like, this is crazy, right? (laughs) Like, this makes no sense. And then we see someone posting on social media about how evil and immoral the Old Testament is. And we're like, well, that's kind of how I felt when I read it last week, you know? And and we can get drawn into that. I just want to encourage you that as you read it through the lens of Christ, it is beautiful and it is good and it is consistent. Do we often misunderstand it? Yes, but but there's a good consistency. It, It goes together. Um, so ethnic unity fails in the flesh. It, it, it can't be accomplished by just being in the right tribe. Being in the right tribe's not enough, right? So politically right now, we're a very, very divided culture politically. And the church is getting sucked in. Man, I have people tell me all the time, if I was a better pastor, I'd be more political. No, I'm here to preach the gospel. That doesn't mean I don't have political ideas, Right? Like, if, if you buy my lunch, I'll tell you some of my political ideas, but I'm not gonna preach them from the pulpit, right? So we just have to, we have to separate these things out. Like, Christians can come together and have different strategies, right? We're gonna raise our children differently. We're gonna vote differently. Uh, we're gonna have different strategies about how to do church. As pastor, I get some say in that. So, you know, we're gonna have services at 9 and 11. That's not the only time you can have church services, right? That's not in the Bible, those are just some strategic decisions we've made. And then there are some things that we do as Christians that are, have a stronger moral foundation to them, right? And then there are others that are like second, third, fourth order effects. And as Christians, we always have to be separating those things out. Does God care morally how we live? Absolutely. Does God want us to justify racism in public? Absolutely not. No, there were some disgusting things in our past that we can easily condemn, right? Because hindsight is 2020. Hopefully, by God's grace, we would have said so in the time as well. I grabbed some pictures from the Little Rock Nine. This was when nine African-American students integrated the public schools in Little Rock. This was in the 50s. I can't remember the exact year now. I should have written that down. But I just wanna call your attention to the political and religious statements being made on the signs that are held up here. I know you can't all see them from the back of the room, so I'll read them to you. One of the signs says, race mixing is communism. Race mixing is communism. Now, some of you understand as Christians, communists generally want to hunt and kill Christians, right? That happens a lot throughout world history. So a lot of Christians are like, I hate communism. Communism is the worst thing in the world. But I just want to help you understand that in our nation's past, being anti-communist was often aligned with being a racist. That doesn't mean they are the same thing. Just know that that's happened in our history and it's confused the conversation big time. So I'm not pro-communist, right? Because generally they want to lock people up like me and say, you can't preach the gospel. I am not for communism. But it's helpful to understand in our nation's past, there were people that might've had some similar political theory to me that also happened to be racists. And that, we wanna distance ourselves from that and say, those, those things don't go together. They shouldn't go together. They don't have to go together. But man, that's all been jumbled in our history. Here's the second sign. Second sign says, stop the race-mixing march of the Antichrist. Stop the race-mixing march of the Antichrist. What is that saying? It's saying, if you wanna mix races together, you are ushering in the Antichrist, the one new world order, right? no they're wrong. I don't know who made the sign, but they had not read their Bible or they had, they had not understood their Bible. Let's, let's put it that way. I'm sure they'd read it. So we just want to distance ourselves from that and, and just say, man, there's been all kinds of mistakes made in our past. And like whipping ourselves and saying, oh, we're so terrible. That's not the solution, right? But we do need to call a ball a ball and call a strike a strike and say like, man, there were people that, that had churches like ours that preached from the Bible and said, things they also said horrible things that were anti-Bible. And we, we wanna separate from that and say, no, that, that was wrong. That was unbiblical. That was not good Bible teaching. So again, the solution's not like beating ourselves up. We're so terrible. Our history's so terrible. But it is important to look back in history and go, okay, yeah, that was wrong. I disagree. My great-grandparents made some mistakes. I don't agree with them. I differ from them. That doesn't mean I pretend that I've made all the right decisions, right? Because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we have a humility as we approach these issues, like, man, I've made a lot of mistakes too. But we also have to be willing to say, that that was just wrong. That was, that was bad theology. That was untrue. Let me try to bring it down into our actual like, daily lives a little bit more. This is advice for parents. And I think this also applies if you're a teacher or a commander, or if you have any kind of authority at all. It's really important to distinguish your authority in your realm between God's laws and your strategic house law, right? So uh, we made our kids make their beds and clean the table after all the meals, right? Guess what? Neither one of those things are in the Bible, okay? Those are different standards than thou shalt not murder. Different level, right? Making your bed and, and cleaning off the table, that's a strategy we had for training our children, we think it was a good strategy. We think that strategy was in line with biblical truth, but not the same thing as the ultimate eternal standards of biblical truth. You have got to be able to distinguish those things in whatever area you have authority. As an authority, as a parent, as a teacher, as a commander, as a boss, you have some authority to set the strategy for your organization. But know that that's not the same thing as do not murder. It's a different level, right? Allegiance to Jesus, obedience to his word, that is what binds us together. That's what unifies us. And then we're, we're going to have different families that are going to do different things and practice different strategies. So when we would send our kids out, we would try to brief them on that. Like, okay, you're going to your friend's house. They might, they might have different rules than us. Don't condemn them, right? Like, don't throw them under the... Now, if they ask you to murder, resist, right? <laughs> but if they tell you you don't have to make the bed, that's okay. That's their house law. They have a different house law than us. That's okay. And we tried to teach our children that as we raised them. You have to do that in whatever sphere you have authority. One more thing. My daughter just told me this last week when she was still home on Christmas break. She's a junior in college. And she said, you know what? One of the things that was really helpful for us growing up to have from you parents that she was just kind of honoring that we had practiced was admitting that you're sinners. That was really helpful. That like made everything make more sense, sadly. But that kind of honesty will allow the people under your authority submit to your authority, right? If you can humbly say, I know I'm not perfect. I'm just leading the best I can. I know I've sinned. If you can apologize when you mess up, self-correct when you've done the wrong thing, but that still, still means you're still on authority, right? That doesn't mean they don't have to obey what you're saying, but just the humility of, of being a Christian that admits I'm a sinner that needs a savior and I'm gonna do things wrong, My authority is not vested in my perfection. My authority is vested in, God just happened to give me that position. I just happened to be the teacher in this classroom. I just happened to be the parent of these children, right? That's a role, but it's not based on my perfection. I don't always do the right thing. I don't always make the perfect choice. I need Jesus to forgive me. So so that's a really helpful distinction to understand Because ethnic unity fails in the flesh. And otherwise, we're gonna try to root unity in our flesh. We're gonna say, well, our family's doing it the right way and you gotta do it our way. And if nobody does it our way, they're all wrong, right? And that just causes more division. We can actually have unity as we recognize some things are more important than our own house law. So we see in the next point, ethnic unity succeeds by the cross. Ethnic unity succeeds by the cross, verses 13 through 18 It doesn't succeed by who I am, where I grew up. It succeeds by what Jesus has done. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So you were aliens, you were outsiders. You were outside of God's promises and God's people. You weren't in the family of God. You weren't in heaven. You weren't in union with God, but you've now been brought near. You've been brought in by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is a shorthand for everything Jesus has done. Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. Jesus died a sacrificial death where he lost blood. So the blood of Christ becomes a catch-all for that whole thing that Jesus did. He lived the perfect life for us. He died a sacrificial death for us. And then guess what? He rose from the dead, proving that what he did worked. And he now reigns as king of the universe. You've been brought near by that blood. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So there was an actual wall in the temple. When the people would come in to worship God, there were just different layers getting into the holiness of God. And that in that holy of holies, right? Only the high priest could go in once a year and they'd tie a rope around his leg in case he was filthy and got struck down by God and had to be dragged out, right? And so there were layers of holiness and they had an outer layer, the court of the Gentiles. If you remember, Jesus got really upset that that court of the Gentiles got taken over by business, by trade and by the selling and the changing of money and all this stuff, because Jesus wanted the Gentiles, the tribes to be coming in and to be meeting God there. So, On the one hand, it's weird to us that there would be a separation, right? As modern people were like, what? The Gentiles couldn't go into the inner court? That seems racist and wrong, right? But again, remember, if you read the Old Testament in context, the Gentiles were always being invited to convert to become a Jew by faith, and then they could come into the inner court. So there's a sign that said, uh, I'm gonna go ahead and read it. Archaeologists have found the old sign. A warning sign in the first century temple when Jesus was walking around it says, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Pretty serious, right? Paul's saying, In Jesus, that sign isn't there anymore. The wall has been broken down. That wall that separates is no longer separating anymore. Because now we're all one. In Christ. So that's part of the beauty of how that unity is, I would say, more clear in the New Testament than it was in the Old Testament. I've already made the case to you. It was there in the Old Testament too, but it's more clear, it's deeper, it's, it's broader, it's more profound in the New Testament now through the work of Jesus. And so Paul's saying that dividing wall has been torn down. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So what does it mean abolishing the law and the commandments Um, This is a hugely debated topic in theology, so I'm just going to give you the thumbnail sketch of this, okay? I've spent way too many hours reading and studying and writing papers on this. The big summary is this When Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he fulfilled the law, both its positive requirements and its uh, negative, um, what's the word, punishments, right? He fulfilled the law, both positively and negatively. He was everything the law calls us to be. He was righteous. He was kind. He was just. But he was also punished in our place. The law commands a punishment for any infraction, for any sin. So that whole mechanism was abolished in Christ. Christ fulfilled it for us. And so now, just by faith in Christ, we can fulfill the law as well. Now we have to be careful about this. It doesn't mean we don't obey his moral commands. It just means the way that we have access to the Father is not through perfect obedience to his moral commands. It's through Jesus's perfect obedience to his moral commands. Jesus obeyed for us, Jesus fulfilled the law for us. So when God looks at you, if you trust in him, if you trust in what Jesus has done, if you trust in who Jesus is, he's delighted in you, he's pleased with you. You have access to the Father. You're his child, you're in his family, you're in the inner circle. Have you ever felt like an outsider? I know I have. I've often felt like an outsider. I felt dirty, gross. I won't use the rough language that Paul used here, but I felt like, you know, a scumbag. But by faith in Jesus, I'm in the inner circle of the universe, right? And you are too, like I'm in the family of God. The God of the universe delights in me through Christ. Christ. That's access. That's the abolishing of those commandments, those hostilities. Verse 16, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. He preached access. So those who were obviously far off, right? We, we talk sometimes about the religious lost and the irreligious lost, There are those who are far off that know it, that are like, I don't want to have anything to do with God. I'm just going to go indulge myself and do whatever I want. The rebels, you have access to God through Jesus. And then there are the religious lost. We're the ones that lie about our closeness to God. We're the ones that pretend we're close to God because we teach Sunday school and give a lot of money. Please give a lot of money. But we we pretend (laughs) we're doing pretty well so far in January. Um, we pretend that we have access to God because of the religious things we do? He's like, no, you don't. You have access to God because of Jesus. So he, he wants us to obey his moral commands. He wants us to be good, but, but that doesn't give us access. Jesus does. We went to Berlin years ago to help uh, execute, execute sounds bad, uh, help pull off a uh, Young Life camp. A couple of years in a row, we did that with other folks with one of our missionaries there in Germany, And it was fascinating to walk around Berlin and see these markers on the ground where the wall used to be. The picture here of these brick pavers that go across a street. And everywhere the wall was, they leave it so people can remember, oh yeah, it used to be there. I used to be divided from others, but now we have access. Now there's a road we can drive across. I used to be separated. The communists versus the the free side on the west used to be two Germanys, two Berlins, but now we're one. We have access to each other. There's no longer this wall anymore. And that's what Paul is appealing to here. You used to be isolated from one another, but now you're one. One of the beautiful things about Martin Luther King Jr. is that he called on that biblical vision of oneness. Now, I just, I just want to be clear, like I wouldn't have agreed with everything Martin Luther King Jr. taught um, he was, I think, a little shaky on the inerrancy, the reliability of scripture. Uh, He was trained in what we would call a theologically liberal seminary that that did not affirm what we would affirm, that the Bible is trustworthy and inerrant. Um, He was also a little shaky on clarity about the gospel, salvation in Christ alone, tended to be a little open-minded in ways that make me uncomfortable. Um, So it's important to acknowledge like, yeah, we don't agree with everything he said, but we honor him just like any time I would do a funeral, Anytime I would do a memorial service, I would say this person was made in the image of God and to the degree that he taught and lived the biblical ethic, that honored God. And so we can honor his memory and lift that up and say, man, he did a lot of really good things. So that's just an important part of us being nuanced and being unified is recognizing, yeah, it doesn't mean we agree with everybody on everything. It's not like this kind of weird, uh, oakley-dokely unity where we don't care about truth. No, we... I would have still debated King on some things, right? While also honoring his heritage of the good things he stood for. One of the things that he stood for that was really beautiful, most famously in his I Have a Dream speech is this dream of unity. Now we would say it can ethically be accomplished as we live out God's ethical commands. I think that's a lot of what King called us to, ethical obedience, doing the right thing. As we do what God's actually told us to do, we'll be more unified. But I think what Paul is telling us here is that it's, it's really rooted in the cross itself because none of us on our own are ethical enough to pull this off. We need God to change our hearts. So part of the vision that we need to recognize is that sometimes we are divided. King pointed this out in, in a letter from a Birmingham jail. It's one of his most famous works. If you haven't read any of his stuff, it's really helpful because there he's, he's talking to conservative Bible-believing pastors that don't wanna have anything to do with what he's doing. So he's making the case that this is an important thing to care about. And he says, talking about himself, he says, you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on the television. You see tears welling up in her little eyes when she's told that Fun Town is closed to colored children. And you see the depressing clouds of inferiority begin to form in her little mental sky. One of the things that King did that I think is important is he recognized there was a problem. He recognized division where it is. So politically, we often kind of sort ourselves into different tribes. And I think there are two things that we can affirm simultaneously on both ends of the political spectrum. Again, I have more political opinions than that, but but this pulpit is not for that reason. But two truths that we wanna affirm that are biblical truths. One, there shouldn't be that separation. We should be one. All people are the same. I think one tribe says that more. The other tribe says, but there are still actual social divisions and problems in our culture. Both things can be true at the same time. Both things are biblical ideas. There is still sin in the world. There's division and brokenness. We need to, we need to see it, acknowledge it, admit when it's there. The other side says, but we should just treat each other equally. There should be oneness. There should be Yes, both, both things can be true at the same time. And so I think it's helpful to affirm what we see and what the goodness is, and then to work our way back and say, okay, we might divide up over strategies of accomplishing these things ethically in the world, but faith in Jesus is the root. That's the foundation issue. Um, William Wilberforce, have y'all heard of William? That's hard to say, William Wilberforce. He was kind of the main leader in England, a, a member of parliament, the main leader that helped to accomplish the abolition of slavery in England. What's really interesting, John Piper pointed this out in a book that I read. He only wrote one book. Famous political leader, you know, everybody publishes these days if you're ever famous. He'd written one book. He'd only published one book. And what was that book about? It was Salvation by Grace Through Faith in Christ Alone. That's the only thing he ever published. So it's fascinating to go, he accomplished these incredible ethical reforms in his society but the one thing he wanted to be known for was faith in Jesus. And so again, I just want to take us back to like, that that's the foundation. Are we going to then take steps in society and and engage in different ways? Yeah, we will, but the foundation is Jesus and what Jesus has accomplished for us. Final point is that ethnic unity is growing now. I said before, I noticed over the years, that sometimes because of Sin in my tribe's past. I would get angry when I'd speak on this subject, and one church member even, you know, challenged me on that. He said, "Like you're angry about this and you're chastising the congregation." I just want to say, man, I want to bless you and say thank you that you are making this a reality. You're living it out. We are a multi-ethnic church. We are an evidence of God's ethnic unity in the world through the gospel. So thank you for that. The leaders, pastors, elders of the church. We desire more, more unity and diversity, more unity in the gospel. We want to continue to grow in that, but it's already growing. It's already happening and we're thankful for it. And we believe that it's through unity in Christ that this will actually take place. So thank you for making it happen. And I think the principal mechanism by which you're making it happen is you're trusting Jesus and then you're loving other people, right? Like like that's how it works. Here's how Paul describes this growing ethnic unity in verses 19 through 22. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints, you're members of the household of God. All right, you used to be isolated from each other, alienated from each other, now you're one. You're in the same household, you're in the same family because of what Jesus has accomplished. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. What's he saying? We, as God's people, coming from different backgrounds, different neighborhoods, some of us religious, some of us irreligious, Some of us one color, some of us another color. Some of us from the United States of America, some of us from other countries. Some of us grew up rich, some of us grew up poor. We we come from all different backgrounds. And we're being built together in unity. He says to create a temple. A temple is where God comes down to reveal himself to people and where people go to meet with God. He's saying the temple is God's 2,000-year-old institution, the church. Started before that in the Old Testament. God is revealing himself through his people that trust in him, that have circumcised hearts, that see that he is king and that he is gracious. God's building you together to be a temple, a magnificent temple where other people will see the glory of God. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that cool that we get a part to be a part of what God's doing in the world? I thought a great illustration of this was, I found online, some people have used Legos to build very beautiful cathedrals. Here's a beautiful cathedral. This is a cathedral in Krakow. I can't remember the exact name of it, but this is a, a model of a real cathedral where people are to meet God, right? And it's built with thousands and thousands of little Lego bricks. Now, I never really did a lot with Legos when I was a kid. I, I, I was a father, so I've stepped on Legos before, right? But Legos in and of themselves are very small, puny, and not very impressive, There's just not much to them. And so here's the illustration. God is saying, you and I are like little bricks, right? And so this is simultaneously humbling and something for us to glory in. You and I are little tiny dumb bricks. It might be a red brick or a green brick or a purple brick, right? We're just little bricks, but God is building us together into something glorious. We're gonna see this later on in the First Corinthians study in 1 Corinthians 12. He's gonna talk about one body with many parts. Some of us are thumbnails in the body of Christ. Some of us are elbows in the body of Christ. Like, but we're building the body of Jesus. Like we are where Jesus is revealed in the world. God is doing magnificent things through you. And this unity is built to the degree that you trust in Jesus more than yourself, more than your tribe, more than your background. Doesn't mean you're not gonna have opinions. We'll have them, we'll debate them, but we're always gonna say, Jesus comes first. He is most important. He's the one that gets the glory. So he goes to, on to say that you're joined together to grow into this holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, in him, you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So cross-references in the letters of Peter, he talks about us as like living stones, Right? You're like a dumb Lego brick, but you're a living Lego brick, right? You're a living stone being built together, and God is doing glorious things here. He goes on to say later in Ephesians chapter 3 that there is an unsearchable amount of riches to be found in Jesus, and we get to be the revealers of that in the world, these unsearchable riches of Christ. He says in Ephesians 3, 9, we're bringing to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. There were tons of mystery cults in the first century, tons of secret societies. You had to be hazed. You had to pay enough money. You had to go through embarrassing rituals. You had to learn secret handshakes so that you could know the secrets of the mystery cult. Paul takes that same language and he says, it's just, laid open in Christ. This secret society is one where all you have to do is admit that you're broken without Jesus. Isn't that amazing? It's not secret handshakes. It's not hazing rituals. It's just, God, I need you. Jesus, I need you. Will you save me? And that's how we get access into God's presence. He goes on in Ephesians 3.10, he says, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I'd never caught this before. I'd actually taught through Ephesians and then was having lunch with a a friend, uh, another pastor who's adopted several children. And so he's a white pastor that has like some black children and some brown children and some tan children, multicolored family, right? And so this verse was really important to him because this word manifold in Greek, polioiklos, its most basic translation is multicolored. And so here in Ephesians, Paul is saying, God's multicolored wisdom is being displayed in the church. So of course, my friend who was living out that reality in his own family loved this verse. Like he's like, oh yeah, this is one of my favorite verses, but more than just in a family that's adopted some children, God's doing this in the church. We are his adopted children. He loves all of us. He pulls all of us in from our different backgrounds and he forgives our sin on the cross. So how do we live this out? Just one more practical step. And this is found in Romans chapter 12. There are just some basic instructions the church has given in Romans. I like to emphasize the word hospitality, which appears in a lot of different places in the New Testament. Hospitality is where, this, where the rubber meets the road, right? Like just the basic function of of how we do this kind of unified life is hospitality. Um, It is a requirement for leaders in God's church. Um, You can't be an elder or pastor in the church, according to the Bible, unless you're hospitable. And that word in in Greek literally means stranger lover, which sounds weird, so (laughs) maybe better to say affectionate towards outsiders, right? So that's a basic qualification of being a leader in God's church. What if for the last 2,000 years, every church made that a real qualification for their leaders. I bet that would have gone a long way in preventing a lot of the problems we've had. But beyond just a qualification for leaders, it's a command given to every believer in the body of Christ. Every believer is commanded to have an affection for outsiders. We're all commanded to live that out. Again, I wanna affirm that I see that repeatedly in your lives, and I'm blessed by that as well. In Romans 12... 13 through 16, he says, contribute to the needs of the saints, but also seek to show hospitality to outsiders. Verse 14, he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. That would go a long way towards building unity, wouldn't it? If we bless those who persecute us and don't curse them. And then in 15 through 16, he says, rejoice with those who rejoice. I like to say, celebrate with those who celebrate. Do you see people celebrating good things in their life? Don't be jealous of them, but celebrate. Because God has given you all things in Christ so you can be happy for your neighbor when they've got good things. Then he goes on and he says, cry with those who cry. The the more well-known translation is weep with those who weep. Now this is really important because this is a command. I want you to understand that this is important to me because the tribe I was raised in doesn't believe that one. The way I was raised, we don't believe that verse. Maybe... Maybe rejoice with those who rejoice, but weep with those who weep? No, that's too emotional. That's weird. You need to pat them on the back and say, suck it up. You're going to be fine. That's how I was raised. But the Bible actually says we should, we should weep with those who weep. We should cry with those who cry. This is one of the practical steps we're commanded to take to build unity across different ethnic backgrounds and tribes. He goes on, he says, live in harmony with each other. Don't be proud, but struggle alongside the weak. Never consider yourselves as wise. What if we obeyed that one? We just never thought we were wise. That would solve a lot of political problems, right? Never consider yourself wise. Again, it doesn't mean you don't have an opinion. It doesn't mean you don't debate with your friends and be like, I really think this policy is better. I think this policy is better. Yeah, we can have those debates, but, but never consider yourself as wise say, no, God is wise, and I'm gonna do my best working out truth in this reality because of who he is. We'll wrap up here. Ethnic unity, true ethnic unity is accomplished through the gospel. We have to make decisions, we have to take steps, we have to live it out in real life, yes, but ultimately it's accomplished through trust in Jesus. And so we see this story arc through the whole Bible, division coming in the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. In our pride, we thought we could work our way to God and God said, no, that's not the answer. You need to trust me. And he divided people into different tribes and languages. Great division. And then we see the healing of that division as the gospel goes out in the book of Acts. So whereas there was misunderstanding and division tribally and ethnically in Genesis chapter 11, now when the gospel is breaking forth in the book of Acts, people are hearing it in their own language. It's one of the miracles of the New Testament. It's the good news of Jesus is, go, is going out into every language to every tongue and tribe so that we see this, this beautiful ending in Revelation chapter five, verse nine, where it says someday there will be every tongue and tribe worshiping Jesus together. There will be ultimate unity. It's happening now, but even better things are coming. And it, it happens as we trust Jesus and follow him. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us and you have adopted us into your family by your grace. You didn't adopt us because we were a part of the right tribe. You adopted us because you were kind and forgiving and loving. And you chose in your good pleasure to make us your own. Thank you for that. Help us to live like that. Help us to, to love others, to have an affection for outsiders, to have a real unity that comes from our trust in you. Lord, teach us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.